I don't know if you read about it this week or if you heard about it at all, but the other day the National Post actually wrote an article about a court case coming out of the lower courts in Quebec. It seems that at the height of the pandemic in 2021, two neighbors got into a tiff, a dispute, and basically a yelling match that accelerated into threats. Well, the police were called in, one man was arrested, not for threats, but for telling his neighbor where he could go with a common gesture that you'd probably see on the 401. <laughs> What's interesting was the judge's decision as I read it. He, 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 he's, he's acquitting the gentleman for this, for this, and he's reading it out loud. And this is what he says, get this. Canadians have a God-given, constitutionally protected right to give the middle finger. Can you believe it? And he goes on to say that it's not polite, but it is a right and a freedom in the sense that it's free speech. I, I know, it, it sounds crazy, and yet this is the level to which our world has fallen. Everywhere you look in our culture, people are decrying, they're, they're saying, these are my inalienable rights, things that are absolute and indisputable. You need to listen to me, this is what I can do. Now what struck me really was the words, God-given right. I mean, it's crazy, right, to be able to say that my will my desire to curse or to swear at my neighbor is okay because God said it was okay. The, the absurdity actually got me thinking about something else. Something that is a God-given right for every one of us this morning who is a child of God, and that is to come unto God in prayer. It's an absurdity because it's something so simple and yet something we struggle with. I think we can safely say that we all have an understanding that prayer is one of the most important aspects of our spiritual life. It's an important indicator of our health, our spiritual walk with God. So why is it so hard? We believe that Jesus Christ died for our sins, right? He paid the penalty for our sin. He turned away the wrath of God and in so doing brought us into a right relationship with God. He reconciled us to God. Whether we knew it or not, before we were saved, we were at war with God, with a holy God. But Jesus' death brings us peace. And it's in this new relationship, this intimate relationship, defined by loving kindness, that we're supposed to come unto God and, and pray for His guidance, pray for His healing, pray for his help. Prayer then should be the most natural, most uncomplicated aspect of our Christian walk. What could be more natural than unburdening our soul, speaking our hearts to our Heavenly Father who has just saved us from our sin? So why is it so hard? Why do so many of us struggle? Part of the challenge, I think, really gets to our view of prayer, the fundamental relationship that undergirds and defines what prayer is, 
and really knowing how important prayer is to sustaining our walk with God. This morning, we're going to be looking at some of the last words of the Apostle John in this epistle that that takes his name, 1 John. We're going to wrestle with this one spiritual truth. Prayer is our earthly means of accomplishing God's will and keeping one another on the narrow path of righteousness. This is our God-given right as children of God. The Creator, Redeemer, has called us and, and brings us into His presence, and we now have this wonderful privilege of prayer. It is our earthly means of accomplishing God's will and keeping one another on the path of straight, uh, a pathway of, of, of righteousness. Now, in verse 14... We see this word assurance, and it means confidence. Because we trust in Jesus Christ for our eternal salvation, we must never fear that for some unknown reason, God is capricious, He changes His mind whenever He wants. For for whatever reason or purpose, He will never hear us when we pray. Our confidence that God does here is the result of knowing with all assurity that I am a child of God. And in fact, there's a direct correlation. The more I'm assured that I'm a child of God, the more that I am in that right relationship of grace, the more prayer will naturally issue out. It's a breathing in of grace and a breathing out of prayer. We should never have any doubts that we belong to Him. And because of that, we should never have any doubts that God hears our prayers. Now, this confidence starts in verses 14 and 15. And we have this general principle of a promise of prayer. Ask, according to God's will, He hears and He grants prayer. Let's just read the verse again. If we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have, been, we have asked for of him. So we read that, and it sounds like there's actually two parts in that. The first part is that God hears, and the second part is that in hearing, God then grants our requests. But that actually misses the original meaning of what's going on here. You see, at almost every instance in the Bible where it talks about God hearing prayer, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament, it always focuses on God answering prayer. So here's the first part. God hears prayer in the sense that He answers prayer. Okay, well, what does that mean for the second part then? Well, it actually introduces a new idea, and here's where the twist is, if if you hadn't seen this before. The promise isn't simply that God hears, but that He hears and He answers our prayers now. You see that word uh, have in verse 15 there? It says, we have the requests that we have asked of Him. That's in the present tense. That's not, you may have it, you might have it. It says, you have them, we have them meaning that they are already ours once we have prayed for them. It's as good as accomplished. The promise is then that not that 
uh, we, again, may have them, but God has already committed himself to doing that. Now, it may seem hard to grasp. How can, how can that be? Well, we just think of the example uh, that we have of Abram and Sarah. They desired a child, and they prayed in earnestness, and, and God credited them unto righteousness that for that faith. As soon as they prayed, God gave them the assurance that it was going to happen. And yet they had to wait 25 years. So, yeah, there are times when God's will may take a little bit of time to work out. But if we're praying according to the will of God, as we're going to start looking at in just a minute, He has already answered our prayers when we pray. Now, this confidence of God answering our prayer, it, it, it comes from Jesus himself. We have at least no less than four different uh, occurrences in the gospel of John, the same writer as, as we're looking at this epistle. So John 14, verse 13 and 14 says this, whenever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask of me anything in my name, I will do it. John 15, verse 7, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Verse 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you, may bear, you might bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide. And here it is, So that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, I may give it to you. And then John 16, Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. This is one of the questions that we're going to wrestle with at different times in our spiritual life, but probably more often during our infancy in our walk with God. You know, what is our relationship? What is prayer? Does prayer actually have a function? Is it effectual? How does this work? Does God even really hear prayer? The answer is yes. Prayer is always heard and answered as it finds its alignment in the will of God. And this now brings us to what we need to understand as a qualification. There is this promise. Whatever we pray for in the will of God, it has already been given unto us. But that's the thing, according to the will of God. If you've been in a good church for any length of time, you've come to understand that, that God is just not a magic Pez dispenser. You know, we pray, you, you hit the button, and it pops whatever you want. It's not a name it and claim it. We would refute any of those teachings that if you want something in your life, you believe you need it, you believe God wants to bless it, all you have to do is pray for it, and it's yours. That's not prayer. We should never suppose that God would grant us anything we wanted just because we prayed for it. However, John says, we do have the confidence in prayer. God hears, God answers when it conforms to what we know is His good and wise purposes, His plans. And it's interesting that wherever this confidence is given to us, even in those other verses that, are, that we just looked at, there is always this caveat. God answers prayer as it aligns to the will of God. 
not our own. Now, for some of us, we may think that prayer is simply a a way to get God to change his mind or, or at least put our agenda on the table so that he would consider it. But according to these verses in 1 John 5, prayer isn't about getting God to pay attention to our needs or wants, but rather making sure that our prayers align with his perfect will, isn't it? It's learning to think God's thoughts after him, desiring what he desires and praying for what he wants. Prayer is not so much about talking with God, talking to God, as it is listening to God. And here's where we need to start maybe refocusing our thoughts on prayers a little bit. When we start talking about prayer, we'll say it's a privilege. It's a conversation. It's a time of worship, of thanksgiving, of praise, of confession. And it is that, but it is more than that. At its very basic level, and I love this phrase, it's not mine, but it's from a 19th century pastor. Prayer is the language of creaturely dependence on God. Prayer is the language of creaturely dependence on God. You see, part of our fallen nature is we think way too much of ourselves. We think way too highly of ourselves. We look at where we've come from and all of the knowledge that we have from science, and we can pat ourselves on the back. We can look at the things that we've been able to harness in this world shape it, use it. We go into outer space and back almost every day now through these uh, vehicles that they have. But you know what? Even in our Christian life, we think way too highly of ourselves. We see ourselves as the most noble being created. We think that because we have the ability to make decisions that bring about change, that we've been granted some form of autonomy or independence outside of God's sovereignty. We think or, or feel somehow that we can live, we can breathe, we can function independently of God. When in reality, we are just like the other creatures of this earth. We are dependent upon God for everything. So we need to ask God for an understanding, as humble as it may be, that we are simply creatures. Privileged creatures? Yes. Because we are made in the image of God. But we are still creatures. We are still bound by the limits that God sets on us. Limits that define a finite reality. We have a finite intelligence, a finite wisdom, a finite power, and all of this, as good as it may sound, is still under the rule of sin. And it's only as we start to grasp our utter dependence on God for everything that our prayer finds its fullest expression, a conscious dependence on God in all things. A leaning and resting on God. 
It's only as we grasp our utter dependence on God that prayer moves from being simply something that, that we see as a privilege that we may want to pick up, but we may leave, leave down on the table. From simply a privilege to a necessity, an obligation that demands our attention. It demands our time. It demands our resources that we be connected to the one who has created us and redeemed us. It's only as we grasp our utter dependence on God does the language of our prayer become one of seeking God's will and God's purposes in all things instead of seeking the things that please me. We will never know the fullness of God's will in every situation. And yet we have the promise that if we pray according to His will, our prayers not only will be answered, have already been answered. Praying, then, is less about knowing what the exact will of God is than it is a posture of joyful dependence on the giver, not the gift. Joyful dependence on the giver, not the gift. Well, you may want to ask, well, well why then should we pray? If God is sovereign, does prayer even really make a difference? Well, let me start by saying, God not only created all things, He upholds and sustains all things, right? There is this, this heresy that crops up every generation or every decade that says that God is basically a, a, a watchmaker and he'll wind up creation and let it unwind. But that is saying that God is not in control of all things. He's not sustaining all things. He is. He is sovereignly ruling and governing all creatures from the greatest to the smallest according to his wise providence and perfect infallible foreknowledge. In his infinite wisdom, in his infinite power, in his infinite foresight, he has predetermined the beginning and the end of all things. And here's where it may start you know, bending the, the mind a little bit to think about. He has pre- determined the beginning and the end of all things, and in his sovereign providential care, he makes all things fall out or happen according to his perfect plan so that they occur by necessity, freely, or contingently. Now, That means that God in every situation is the first cause of everything. But basically, God uses second causes to bring about his perfect will. And here's where it matters for us this morning. When we're told that we can have the confidence that God answers our prayer when it aligns with his purposes, we're getting a glimpse into God's providential rulership and his loving purposes for us. He's already predetermined the best course of action that will bring him glory at the final. He's already perfectly set the end game, and yet he's fixed the secure outworking of some of these things, of his sovereign work in accordance to our prayer. God doesn't need the prayers of his people to do his will, but he has determined in his perfect wisdom that prayer is the means through which he will often accomplish things. 
That's why the Apostle John says with this general principle of prayer, when we pray for things that align according to the will of God, he's already accomplished it because he is the first cause and he is using our prayer to to bring about the fulfillment of his promises. So does prayer make a difference? Yes. As it aligns to the will of God, that is what God uses so many times to actually bring about what he desires to happen. When we come in, in this total dependence, this creaturely dependence, prayer is often the divine trigger that God uses to accomplish His will. So pray. Pray with confidence because He has given you the gift of eternal salvation. Pray expectantly as you come in humility before the Lord because as you ask, according to His will, it has already been accomplished. It is yours. Now, to some degree, everything that we've been talking about up till now is just the foundation. This is the general principle. John is going to take this and now move to a very specific application. But without kind of talking about this and putting it on the table and digesting it a little bit, we'll never really fully understand what he's getting to at the second part. Because John takes this general promise now that God hears, that God answers prayer, as it, and puts it in the specific context. Look what it says again. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. When we come in prayer, when we're prompted to pray, what's our most often response? Well, I I have needs. Uh, I've got bills. I've got schoolwork. I I would love a husband, a wife, a family, a new job. I've got a a horrendous, stressful situation in my life, and I need you to help me, Lord God. And so, in other words, when we come to God, our first thoughts are almost always for ourselves. But John is moving this conversation, this general promise of prayer uh, that fulfills his will, to now saying there is a need to pray for others. Now, just like we saw a minute ago that there's this promise of prayer, there's a qualification, that's what we're going to be looking at now. There is a promise and a qualification. But again, let's read the verse. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. Even at a a really quick glance, it's obvious what John's talking about here, right? It's what we would call intercessory prayer. Praying on behalf of others. Interceding on behalf of others. Now, understanding this is important because it, it starts moving us in this direction. Our first desire is for ourselves, but John says you need to be praying for others. And there's a serious challenge or a problem in our lives that he's going to now address. Here's the thing. We are to pray for those who have fallen into sin. And as we pray, God will restore. So there's some challenges in understanding the words and and how he puts this together. We'll come back to it at two brief times because it's almost impossible to really digest. I don't claim to know everything here. But let's start with the promise.
If we pray for our brother and sister who are, who's walking in sin, a sin that is not leading unto death, God will give life. That's the promise. Over the previous chapters, John has been encouraging us that true followers of Jesus Christ must pursue holiness in, in every aspect of our life, right? This is the, the natural outworking of our salvation. We desire holiness. It's also that evidence that, that says, yes, you are a child of God, because it can only be done by God in your life. These, these dramatic spiritual changes are not something that you can bring about it's God working in you. So yet, you are a child of God. You are born of God. But if we're honest, we know that each and every one of us is going to stumble. We're going to stumble badly. We're going to become entangled in sin. And when this happens, what are we to do? What is the child of God to do? He is to confess his sins turn to Christ who will intercede on our behalf. And as we have a broken, a true heart and confession, God will forgive us our sins. Now, let, let me just take a quick divergence here. There's a, there's a difference between Christ as mediator and Christ as, as our, um, as our, our uh, I can't think of the right term for it now. This happens when you go on a, a little side dish. <laughs> I'll come back to that. Um, so we are called to seek after godliness in all things. But we know that we're going to fall into sin. Here's the problem. When we're in sin, when we're in rebellion, is it our first desire to come to God? To seek repentance? Usually not. We don't want to admit our sin to God. We're too busy enjoying that sin. So no, that, that's not our first reaction. So the question is, what then happens to the child of God when they're walking in sin? Should we as brothers and sisters leave them to walk in sin into the consequences of, of what they've done? And John says, no. He says, you who are spiritual need to pray on behalf of that person. Either they're not able to understand, they're not able to repent, but you are to intercede on their behalf that they might have life. Well, in verse 16, there's a verb change here. Now, remember I said a minute ago that, that as we pray according to God's will, we already have what we've prayed for? It's a present tense. Verse 16 actually uses a simple future. It means that as we are praying, God is surely committing himself to doing it because, again, it's already within the bounds of his will and purposes to do. It is an assurance. God is going to do it. Now, again, there's a few problems with, with understanding everything that John's trying to get at here. So think about it this way. If the word brother is used in its traditional sense here, that we're talking about a Christian, and it's not just applied to everybody, and if the word life here has its normal meaning, that we're talking about spiritual life, eternal life, then the question our, our mind should rise, well, how can God give eternal life to someone who has already been redeemed, who already owns eternal life because of faith in Jesus Christ? 
But here's the thing, knowing the context of the letter, the easiest way to resolve this situation is to say, yes, John is talking about brothers and sisters in Christ, true believers. And that through our prayers, God brings not eternal life, but a sense of the fullness of their salvation, a clean conscience before God. In John 10, verse 10, Jesus himself says, I am the good shepherd. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. It's not just an eternal life in the future, but a fullness of knowing the grace and the, and the loving kindness of God here and now. It's this abundance of life that I believe that John is talking about here. When we see a brother or sister sinning, our responsibility must be to pray for them. And that as our prayers are earnest, God will restore them to a healthy spiritual walk again. But again, I, I don't know about you, but praying isn't necessarily always my first reaction when I see someone sinning, especially if the sin has affected me. You know, if I know somebody really well, and I know the reality, I, I'm more inclined to pray on their behalf, right? But if I don't know them well, I, I can either fall into the, the sin of, of just ignoring it and not praying at all, or even worse, gossiping about it. You know, we should pray for so-and-so because they're, they're doing this, and then we fall as well. Throughout the whole epistle so far, throughout this whole letter, John has been focusing on loving one another, of a self-sacrificing, meeting the needs, physical and spiritual, of those we call brothers and sisters in Christ. What could be more loving? What could be more selfless than to pray for a fallen brother or sister in Christ? To beseech the Lord when they don't want to, they don't even know that they're sinning necessarily, and beseech the Lord for repentance. Beseech the Lord that they would come again to know the sweetness of walking with God. And the promise is that as we commit to praying for them, as we see them in the sin, God will give life. And I don't know if you've ever thought about that before. And keeping in mind this whole question we just looked at in that contingency, God is the first cause, but he uses secondary causes to bring about his good and wonderful purposes, including prayer. Do you realize that God has said here that your prayers are an effective means of the sanctification of your dear brothers and sisters in Christ? God has ordained your prayers as they align with His will to, to restore them to a right relationship with, with Him again. That's phenomenal. That's powerful. That God has said, I will use the prayers of others to bring repentance, to restore right relationship with me again. With someone who, who, who is wallowing in their sin. But just like we looked at a few minutes ago, there is a qualification again. It, it's hard to imagine, isn't it, that God would ever not want to restore anyone. 
that God would not want to restore someone who's walking in sin. And God is love. He wants everybody to enjoy the fullness of that relationship. But John hesitates here. He wants to encourage us that our prayers are real, effectual. They bring about real change in the life of other brothers and sisters who are walking in sin. But there is still an, a lingering question. Is it always God's desire to restore someone who's fallen into sin? He's made this bold promise that God uses our prayers to restore others who are falling into sin. He, he doesn't say that, that you shouldn't pray for the person, but there is an exception here, isn't there, to the promise. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that you shouldn't pray for it, but you need to be aware that there may be times in your life when you stand on this promise and you're interceding, weeping on behalf of a dear brother and sister in Christ, that they would be restored, that they would repent, and yet God does not honor that prayer. What does that mean? What is a sin that leads to death? Is it spiritual death? Is it physical death? Well, what exactly it means, we just don't know today. The original meaning was obviously understood by the, the first century readers, but God has permitted that the fullness of that understanding not be recorded for us at this time in Scripture. It's been lost. Over the centuries, there has been different hypotheses, different things put forward as this is what it means. And even today, you look at, uh, read people or listen to, to the pastors, and there will be a whole bevy of options, and it's amazing. So here are the four briefest, most common. First, number one, what is the sin that leads unto death? Well, first, we're talking about a particularly heinous or terrible sin. There is a sin that is so horrendous that God will not pardon a, a sin that is so far out of God's grace that he will not request. We're talking about something that's so terrible God would never forgive. People talk about it as suicide, as murder. And this is where the Roman Catholic Church gets their ideas that there, you can either divide the, the sins into what are called mortal and venial sins. Venial sins are sins, but there's no real ultimate consequence. But mortal sins will actually mean death. The problem is that we don't see this grading of sins in the Bible. Sin is sin. That's exactly what verse 17 says, isn't it? All sin is sin. The second way this sin that leads unto death can be understood is that John is talking about apostasy. We've seen this before, that he's been talking to the, these first century readers and saying, yes, you have lost these wonderful teachers and pastors that have, have gone out from you. They have turned to heresies. They are now teaching heresies. But we need to ask ourselves, is it possible for a true believer to become apostate? 
If we are born of God, if it is God working in us and not us, can we ever reject the sovereign work of God? Can we ever nullify the work of God in our life? Everything, uh, our hope is set on the sovereign work of God. Our eternal security is in Him and not us. The, the third way of understanding this sin that leads to death is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit that we see in Matthew chapter 12. There is a sin that is blasphemous to God. Someone who says and lives as a follower of Jesus Christ, who at some point rejects the gospel and ultimately comes to the place where they blaspheme the Holy Spirit, saying, that was not of God, that was of Satan. I was tricked. I renounce everything that God has done. That is a sin of blasphemy that God will not honor. And lastly, some say that John is simply speaking of a physical death here. And here's the, the, the thinking. A Christian may become so rebellious and so bitter in their life that God will allow the natural ultimate consequence to happen. A Christian who repeatedly walks according to the flesh has lost their usefulness, their saltiness, their, their light in this world, and God will discipline. Seen in this light, we're talking about the most extreme discipline God could ever bring upon a Christian, and that is physical death. Once a person is saved, he can never be lost. But if he or she becomes carnal and lives and rejects God's discipline and say, no, no, I'm going to continue to wallow in where I am. I'm not going to seek after righteousness. God has every right in the world as creator, as redeemer, to take them out of this world and cause them to pass away. Which of the four is it? <laughs> Which of the four? Well, again, ultimately, we don't understand. We don't know. But that causes a pitfall for so many of us. Because we want answers. We want to know what is that sin that leads unto death. And we come, become so strangely fascinated by trying to unravel that whole question that we actually miss what God is telling us to do here. He says, pray for your brother or sister who is sinning, and I will restore them. And you know what, as I was thinking about this this morning, I was thinking, it actually adds urgency. There are four options, at least. There are, there are others, John, sorry, not John MacArthur, John Piper says that the sin here is actually not loving one another because that's the focus of everything that John's been talking about. So there are different options that this sin unto death could be. And because we don't know we should be looking around more closely at how our brothers and sisters are walking. It would be easy to say, well, that's the sin that leads unto death. Now I'm going to pray for them. But if we're not for sure what exactly that sin is, and, and we see somebody in sin, that should bring urgency to our prayer. That should say, we need right now to pray. Because whether it's death or whether it's spiritual, we don't know but God was going to judge. That's a challenge. There is an exception. 
But the very fact that God has not made it clear to us what that exception is means that we need to pray. John was writing to believers who were were inundated with the antagonism of this Roman world. They had lost some of their most important shepherds. They were struggling with sin. They were struggling with their own assurance of salvation. And John says, pray for one another. The very spiritual survival of your church depends on praying for one another. And I have established prayer as a means through which I'm going to accomplish my will. Could I bring restoration? Could I humble them? Of course. But I want my people to see the glory of my name. I want my people to be humbled so that in seeking restoration for others, they themselves are seeking after me. We are to pray in all things. There is a lot that we don't know about prayer, how it works, why it works, but that doesn't mean that we should never not pray. It is a privilege, but it is more than a privilege. It is an obligation, first and foremost, because we are creatures. We were created by God, now we are redeemed by God. It is the sustenance, the the flow of grace that comes to us. We need to be in that conduit, that relationship. But God also promises that there will be life. If we pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ, God will give life. God has ordained that prayer is a means by which He will accomplish His will. Anything we pray for that conforms to His will, to His good and wonderful purposes, has already been given unto us. Why don't we pray? But God has also ordained that our prayers are actually a means to life, to an abundance of spiritual life, when we see a dear brother or sister in Christ wallowing in sin. We'll never know the fullness of God's will for us, but we do have one very clear expectation. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 God's will for you is to be holy. And when you stumble... God has provided a means by which we can restore one another, by which we can come together and make sure that each of us is on the path, uh, the narrow path of righteousness. Because in and of ourselves, we can never accomplish that. Our Heavenly Father.